It's a hit! Except when it isn't. This week on Download This Show, we think of shows on Netflix and Stan and Disney Plus and Amazon as being hit shows. Because everyone is talking about them, but the truth is that largely, no one outside of those companies usually knows exactly how many people are watching. So that hit show might not be. But can we bring a little transparency to the process? And should we? Plus, the women who are taking on an adult media company. We also talk about augmented reality surgery. Very few of us are travelling overseas anytime soon, but when we do, will you want to do it at the speed of sound? All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed, it is a brand new episode of Download This Show. And for the first time in what feels like eons, I actually have two people in the studio with me. Uh, from the Queens of the Drone Age podcast, Ray Johnson, welcome back. Thank you for having me. I've got my game show voice on. Welcome back. Yay! Come on down. <laughs> Jono Seidler, creative lead with Unyoked. Welcome back. Thank you. <laughs> All right, let's start off with Netflix. As I mentioned earlier, you don't actually know when a Netflix show is a hit show, but over, at least in the US, there is... One organisation who nominally are in charge of TV ratings who are trying to change that introduced me to the very ominously named The Gage, Ray. Yeah, The the Gage is Nielsen Ratings' product. They're attempting to introduce that will monitor your Wi-Fi and your internet usage in order to identify when you are streaming Netflix shows. And, look, it's an interesting thing that they're saying that they're only just starting to do because there are products that they already own that mm. do things like this already. And we even have them here in Australia. You know, Nielsen provides information to the two rating systems that we have here in Australia. They monitor about 8,000 different households. So it's not really an accurate representation of what we're all watching either. Yeah. The numbers that we get out of Nielsen we just kind of accept (laughs) that they are a representation of the broader population and what we're watching, but it might not be the case. To be fair, TV ratings have always been, and I mean, they're nowhere near as bad as (laughs) radio. Very fuzzy. Yeah, radio surveys are probably the most like, made it up on the spot kind of vibe. But (laughs) So what you actually get out of this, and, and it's fascinating to look at, is you get kind of like a pie chart, I guess, that kind of shows you where people's viewings are. But there's a few things that it obviously lacks, Jono, one of which being like, Mobile. Yeah, mobile and laptop, which I think is like a glaring oversight. And I think <laughs> I think they're aware of that fact. They plug essentially like into your router that's connected to your TV, I believe is how it works. And it's like 14,000 televisions that they did in the, in the US to get these numbers. So obviously when it comes out, they go, most people are still watching terrestrial TV, mm. which is to be expected. <laughs> but interestingly, what they're finding, and when you look at that pie, is that, and I think it's not just Netflix. Netflix just has the biggest share of that streaming pie. Which stands to reason. Which stands to reason is that it's growing like year on year by 6%, which is like a massive. So for the last two years, it went from, I think, like 14% to 20% to 26%. So of the overall share of those TVs that they're monitoring. So even if you're talking about traditional people watching traditional TV and maybe having Netflix plugged into that, that's growing 6% every single year, which, like, Reed Hastings must be, like, Hank Scorpio at this point. <laughs> so how does that work? Because now, like, the, the other big thing that's sort of changed in the last couple of years is now there's, like, competition. So mm. you've got your – I mean, in the US, you've got HBO Max, Paramount Plus, 
Disney Plus, like the whole stack of them, has that not had an impact on their share? It has. It's a percent of a percent. So Netflix is like, (laughs) Netflix is the largest, Netflix and YouTube have the largest slice of that overall streaming slice, I believe is how it works. Right. But interestingly, like you were saying before, there's been previous attempts to do this. They did it through audio um, when they were trying to monitor that. The audio is really cool, actually. And And how did that work? Well, there's... The device that you actually have in your house when you are a Nielsen household. So you have this device that's set up on your television and then you also have a remote control for every member of the family where you press a button when you're starting to watch something. So it can grab the demographics of who in the household is actually watching what oh it is, God. but it detects like more, the you audio. Lost me at more <laughs> yes, carry on. So the actual device that's on the television will detect the audio of the program that you're watching as well. So it's a bit of a cross-reference check. Mm. It's like Shazam. Yeah, and this is where some of the other streaming services like Hulu will actually put little audio tags in their programs. So Nielsen mm. will be able to detect when they are being watched on their television. And this is what they've been trying to get Netflix to agree to as well, to give them access to more easily identify those programs. They can identify what you're watching already. They just can't really narrow it down to where you're watching it or how you're watching it on smart TVs unless they bring in the gauge. Mm, The gauge. I think also like Reed Hastings (laughs) is just really interesting in this because like three years ago when they were doing the audio stuff, he just junked it. He was like, this is, I think it was for Stranger (laughs) Things. They were trying to prove how many people were watching it. We should say before we go any further, Reed Hastings is uh, head on show at Netflix. Sorry. Yes. Carry on. And, And he was like, nah. He's like, this is so far from what it actually is. Mm. And it's like, he just holds, and I think that's the big piece here of why Nielsen want to get involved. But also like there's there's two, I guess, aspects of this. There's like creative and content. From a creative perspective, there's that classic story about House of Cards where they realise that in the first episode, sorry for anybody who hasn't watched House of Cards, but Spoilers. God, uh, where they, they killed the dog. That that's right. They told Kevin Spacey and David Fincher, like, hey, your ratings are dropping. Like, the second, like, this show is going off a cliff. Yeah. And David, David Fincher's Fincher like, never, never, ever show a creative. Never tell us yeah. that. So there's a creative element. But then there's also, like, they are licensing huge amounts of traditional content, you know, the Battle of the Friends and Seinfeld and all that kind of stuff. And f- at the moment, they really hold the upper hand because mm. they get to say, like, we are the best. We have these huge numbers. We won't tell you what they are. Mm. <laughs> but go with it. And now when this stuff starts to come out, that kind of like if you are CBS or whatever and you own vast swathes of content, you can start to have an even playing field. And I think that's what's going to be really interesting. Yeah, I mean, the the only reason this product exists is basically because the streaming services won't tell you (laughs) what doesn't work. They'll tell you what does work. Mm. They'll happily tell you that 62 million households watch that George Clooney movie. They'll tell you when there's successes. What you don't know is when things don't work. And, And if you're a creator or a studio negotiating with them for stuff, it massively diminishes your negotiating power if you don't know how successful this show is to them. And I think that that speaks to probably a a broader issue. One of the questions with that, though, is, is the daily sort of conversation around ratings and results necessarily good for a TV show, Ray? Oh, good for a TV show is an interesting question. Um, Good for us as people and as a society. I think it's really interesting. Just as someone who loves data and loves information, we can get into bubbles in Mm. what we watch, what we view. We assume that other people have seen what we've seen, think how we think, and actually being presented with cold, hard facts that most people in Australia are tuning into the most trashy, terrible reality television show that you can imagine every night, as opposed to, you know, the really thoughtful investigation by a current affairs show that you think everyone should know about. I think we need to know that Mm. just for our own 
you know, well-being <laughs> so that we know how to operate yeah, within the world. But that's not who these ratings are for. These ratings aren't for us. They're ultimately for advertisers when it comes down to it and investors and people that are looking to commercialise and make money from this content. I think that's true. I mean, less so in the sense of Netflix, who obviously famously don't advertise at yeah. the moment. But I think there's also a media hook here. Like, I've been watching this French show called Lupin, which is amazing. Oh, so, uh, I watched say- the first episode of that one. Can you just say it for me one more time? <laughs> Lupin. Um, I called it Lupin. You just became 30% more attractive. <laughs> Thank I you. you know that. <laughs> this is a show which is uh, about a gentleman thief. It's all set in Paris. The whole thing is spoken in French. There are subtitles. Traditionally, most people would look at that, go, no, nope, don't want to deal with it. You know, it's some weird art house thing. It's been a massive global success. Mm. And if I hadn't read about the fact that there was a massive global success coming out of France, maybe I would have seen it, but maybe my friends wouldn't have seen it or I couldn't convince my friends to watch it because to your point about bubbles, we all stay in what we know. But when you go, oh, everyone's watching it, like not so good in the case of Tiger King necessarily, (laughs) but in the case of like uh, voices and and people who may not have otherwise been seen, it's, it's a big thing. People chase success. If you can say something successful, it's won awards or everybody's talking about, if you can say that, there is this natural like, oh, what's that about kind of reaction. Also, Lupin. Brilliant. Very good show. You should watch more than the first episode. Okay. I've got a big list. <laughs> She's on radio right now. Now, I only started Leave. watching it. <laughs> go, watch, go watch the sexy French show. I only started watching it because it came up on the recommended algorithm as something that was trending that heaps of people were watching, which mm. I do not trust as far as I can throw <laughs> oh, it. But no. Netflix tells me that everyone else likes it, so I'll give it a shot. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guests this week are Ray Johnson and John O'Sidler. I'm Mark Fennell. And interesting story in the realm of adult content. Now, we're going to navigate this as sensitively as possible, but if you do have kids in the car, just know that we are going to be talking about the world of pornography, although not in any explicit detail uh, over the next couple of minutes. Be warned. So it seems more than 30 women are suing a well-known streaming site called Pornhub. John O'Why? I mean, there's a bevy of reasons. Uh, prime among them that there's underage content that's going up uh, without their consent, that Pornhub is hosting illegal content that includes very, really kind of gross stuff like underage sex, rape, forced sexual assault, all that kind of... It's just... Reading about this has been really horrible, actually. But just generally, like, the stories that have come out as a result of this has been really horrible. So there's, like, a class action that is under, like, racketeering laws in mm. the US at the moment where they're trying to insinuate that, that Pornhub and MindGeek, which is the Canadian company that owns Pornhub, is essentially profiting from a criminal enterprise. And they, they've brought a class action to try and actually nail them to the wall on this one. So, Ray, one of the issues with Pornhub is the fact that it's it's kind of a it's a user upload system. It's basically yeah. YouTube-adjacent, right, um, which I'm sure they love that comparison. That's got to make it very hard to police, I imagine, right? Yeah, and they say that they do have human moderators, but we have no idea how mm. many human moderators. And you know, we're talking about millions and millions and millions of hours of content being uploaded. Like in one year it was something like 1.39 million hours of content being uploaded in a year to be able to go through that amount of content and make sure that it's all you know above board is a huge undertaking and yeah this resulted I think it was about this time last year actually we Pornhub had to do a huge purge of any of their content that was unverified so anyone can upload content but verified users are as the name suggests, verified. They've had their identification checked. You know, the, the content that they're uploading is more carefully scrutinised. We're now in a position where Pornhub is allowing people to just upload content again. And there is also still historical cases of content that still exists on the platform that 
should not be there. Mm. And we've had you know, victims in this case and in numerous other cases as mm. well. If you Google this, it's just pages and pages of people trying to get their content off of Pornhub. It's just a never-ending problem, it seems. It's horrific. I mean, you've got stories of people who were, you know, sexually assaulted when they were underage and then they are re-traumatised by yes. having this thing exist forever on the internet and then constantly being re-uploaded. I mean, there are mechanisms that, I mean, just to draw the comparison between YouTube and Pornhub together a little bit, because there are some similarities. There are mechanisms that certainly YouTube has put in place to 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 stop uploading a certain things, so like kind of artificial intelligence to recognise certain images and, and whatnot. Why has it proven to be so much more difficult for Pornhub to do something similar? Like, is there anything standing in the way of that? Cash is a big one. Yeah, right. <laughs> they can monetize against this, particularly the free tier, which is what we're talking about here. So they have obviously like a premium level, which is probably all above board, all regular porn stuff, you know, the kind of run-of-the-mill stuff that you would expect when you go to a porn site. But what has actually made them a staggering success is this kind of like free-for-all where nobody's paying for it, right? But mm. they're making money off every single hit. They've got banner ads, they've got pop-ups, they've got the whole shebang. So they have a real reluctance to get rid of that. And I've read a few stories about women who said that they wanted to get stuff taken down and they own about something like 50 like other porn yeah. sites yeah. where they will just like change the name or like kind of like boot it off to another website. So it's actually almost impossible to follow that all the way through. So that's kind of stopping it as well. They do have the ability to just hide stuff for a certain amount of time and then just re-upload it again. It's not in their best interest to get rid of it. They've said that it is, but I kind of am a bit dubious about that. And Pornhub, they are using a third party in order to detect certain videos that have been banned from the site previously mm. to stop them being re-uploaded again. So there, there are some measures in place. And if you ask Pornhub, they're doing absolutely everything they possibly can, considering the huge platform they have and the amount of content that they have to deal with. But the fact is it's still not good enough and it's having huge implications for the women involved. The specifics of exactly what laws they're bringing this case under, I think, are fascinating. So as you mentioned earlier, it is under a racketeering, in effect, a racketeering law, but the complaints being alleged here are really varied. Is that going to make it harder for the lawsuit to be successful given the, the differences in the stories? I unfortunately don't have a lot of faith in the lawsuit being successful, unfortunately. I think Pornhub have a lot of protections given that they are a site that exists within the US and as such mm. you know, they're not actually legally responsible for the content that's uploaded by third parties on their site, especially if they can prove that they are taking all reasonable measures in order to stop that from happening and to remove it when their attention is drawn to it. And that's what they say. As soon as we know that it exists... It's gone. It's gone. However, in the cases of these women and in the cases of many other women, that's not happening. They're mm. saying it's not happening. I think also what's interesting is I was trying to Google, which again is ruining my algorithm yeah. for life. Just if incognito mode. Like yeah, I know. Common. If there's ever been a successful lawsuit yeah. against Pornhub or any of these guys, I can't seem to find anything. I think a lot of suits have been brought, yeah. but the outcome is still pending on quite a few of them. And I think the only success that I've seen, again, just to go back to, to the money thing, is that New York Times did a big 
explosive piece on them at the end of last year when one of the previous suits was brought and MasterCard and Visa withdrew themselves as payment operators. I think it was for a period of time. But, like, that's going to hurt, you yeah. know? And, and that was what led to the purge. Yeah. yeah. So it's that kind of stuff. People have to kind of, like, vote with their wallets, I guess. All right. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And no one, as I mentioned at the top of the show, is travelling anytime soon. But when we do eventually date pack to the skies and go overseas... Will you want to do it at the speed of sound? Are you going to be that desperate to just get off this island? Uh, Ray, there's talk about um, reintroducing airplanes that kind of like, it's kind of like going back to the days of the Concorde in a way. It is. They're planes that break the sound barrier, the the supersonic planes. United Airlines are actually the ones that are, are looking at purchasing at least 15 jets initially and then a further 35 from a startup company called Boom Supersonic who has plans to create a, a more efficient, more cost-effective and safer and maybe quieter. I don't think it will be. <laughs> Their name uh, is Boom Supersonic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was famously the thing with the Concords. They were stunningly loud planes. Stunningly other loud and, and loud enough that they're banned over most land. You can't fly them over land. You have to fly them over the sea. There's a lot of issues that came with the Concords, especially in regards to safety as well. Well, the last flight was in 2003, but three years prior to that, there was an absolutely disastrous crash. Everyone on board passed away and it also killed four people on the ground. So there's massive safety concerns that have followed the legacy of the Concorde and put a really big roadblock in place for anyone wanting to replicate that kind of technology. United is interesting because they obviously have ports in like Newark and, and San Fran, which are you're less likely to fly over land, which is, as mm. you were saying, a huge, a huge issue that they've been having. I was thinking like maybe they could do San Fran to Sydney. That's yeah. just like straight water. Yeah. Let's, let's do that. Yeah. But yeah, the big, the big, big, big problem for them was fuel. We're obviously in a much more environmentally conscious environment than we were in the heyday of Bill Clinton, you know, and I think they're talking about like green fuel and, and trying to figure out a way to get around that. It hasn't been kind of stipulated what that's going to be, but I don't think it would be a good look for high flyers. Sorry about the pun. Um, <laughs> who, are, who are working for companies that are trying to be more proactive about the environment to be kind of stepping onto a plane that is burning fuel so fast that it's twice the rate of a regular airliner. I could understand the the desire for it. I was just trying to work out if there is a market for it, though, right? I think there could be a market for it if they solve the problems right. involved in it. But those problems seem to be intrinsically tied to the type of travel that it is. And, yeah, we can talk about sustainable fuel. Yeah, we, we can talk about all of these changes that they've made. But we're talking about plans here. They don't even have a prototype of this plane. They're, they're looking at, what was it, like another five years before they have a, a yeah. model, a third of the size? It's a picture at the moment, which is great. That's how I always launch like really hectic <laughs> and potentially life-threatening aircraft with, a, with an image and then people just go, yep, that seems good, let's yeah, go. Yeah, we'll invest <laughs> billions of dollars into that. It's it's perfectly fine. You yeah. know, I, I think it, I think <laughs> it could be. The image of like drawing something in crayon and then United just giving me billions of dollars to develop it. <laughs> it must work, right? Why are we wasting time on radio? We should be doing this right now. I think Boom Supersonic have an amazing sales team. That's that's what I'm going to put yeah. out there. Uh, but they're not the only ones working on this. Mm. You know, NASA's been working on a version of this for quite some time. You know, the funding for that was greenlit during the Trump era, which is unsurprising that he would greenlight something like this, to be honest. Yeah. I keep forgetting that time happened. <laughs> Tell me a little bit more about the NASA one. I didn't realise they were doing that. Yeah, the, the one that NASA's doing is actually pretty cool because it doesn't use 
a sonic boom in the way that we think about a sonic boom. The sonic boom is as loud as it is because it's all concentrated in one place. Mm. In this particular aircraft, it's it's kind of spread out and it, and it creates little ripples. So it's what they describe as a little bit more like a soft thump <laughs> as opposed to a boom. And this Sonic will- thump is not better. <laughs> it's just not as good, it's, is it? It's, it's, it's a soft thump. Thump. It's it's a it's a nice little rumble. It's a. It's You're a- not making this better. <laughs> You're just making it sound weird and creepy now. But what it means is that it's not so loud that you wouldn't be able to fly it across land, which right. means we'd be able to have more routes, you'd be able to fly more times a day, You know, the fuel costs would potentially be lower, it would be less expensive. I think NASA's version is the way to go and probably more likely to happen. Mm. I just, You guys were talking about holograms last week. Can't we just skip to teleportation? I feel oh, like we yes. are so... My wife was saying this this morning. She's like, just skip, just go straight to teleportation. Like By the time we get this done, we will probably be there. It's funny, I was thinking about this in in part because of the holograms from last week. It's like, I reckon because of the pandemic, because we haven't been able to travel and because we're all so thoroughly sick of Zoom, there will actually be like this sort of elastic-like reaction to travel. Be like, I need to go to there. Like even this, like the, the, having you two in the room, like it was, it's really, really, really weird, right? Because we spent so I thought so you were going to say good. Also good. <laughs> also good. But it's like, I, I feel like there's a thing in the back of my mind going, oh, that's why we did it like this for eight years. We had people in the room and I feel like there's a little bit of, I think part of why travel is interesting to talk about now is because I think it'll go into overdrive as soon as it's re-allowed. But tell me if I'm wrong. <laughs> no, no, I think, I think you're, you're absolutely right. right. I think, you know, we, we saw that already with New Zealand opening up a little bit of a travel bubble and everyone being like, I'm going to Queenstown. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're, we're historically in Australia, we've always travelled mm. as far and wide as we Huge could. Huge travel market. Massive. And I don't think that's going to slow down now that we've been restricted. The opposite will happen. Speaking of holograms, this is a terrible segue because it actually has nothing to do with holograms whatsoever. Uh, Download the show is the name of the program you're listening to. We're actually talking about augmented reality. And John Hopkins in the US, a team of neurosurgeons over there, have performed a first in the world augmented reality surgery. Right, so augmented reality is obviously uh, it's, it's a adjunct of virtual reality. This is normally where you wear a headset and then it overlays a sort of a digital overlay over the real world that you're looking through. Ray, exactly what was going on? Oh, this is so cool. This is one of my favourite things that's ever happened. So <laughs> surgeons... I'd like th- to remind you, you have a child. <laughs> <laughs> he knows, he knows. So, <laughs> so this is something that was actually being used in training for quite some time. So we, we need to preface that they didn't just jump straight into doing this in the surgery, but surgeons used augmented reality. They had goggles on their heads w- that we normally use in more virtual reality, which mm. obscures what you can see. But they used augmented reality to have an overlay of scans of the patient's body and issues that they were operating on so that they could see exactly where, you know, screws needed to go and things needed to be cut out. And it worked really well for them. And I'm very excited by this. So they were working on a, on a spine, right? And so I'm just looking at the pictures here. It's basically showing that, you know, you could see the actual scan of the spine underneath what they were working on. Mm. And it is, it is kind of amazing. It's really useful. I've called a few friends who are doctors uh, in the, since I found out about this because I wanted to see if they were interested in doing it. Um, mm. And they were all saying the big issue is particularly when it comes to surgery is that you're dealing with really finicky, really finite kind of movements, but also you're constantly having to move back and forward between scans. Mm. And that is like a massive issue because there's room for error. Stuff gets left behind. 
hopefully not that often, but like there is, there's a fallibility issue there that can actually be solved by this. And they were all for it. Everybody that I talked to was like, if this actually came off, it would be phenomenal. What are the limitations I would imagine? And tell me if I'm wrong here is, is got to be latency, right? The latency between, you know, as your head turns and the image turns, I know latency has improved drastically in the last couple of years. Is it at a stage where it almost feels like you're looking at real time two images superimposed on each other? Yeah, there's been massive advancements in the last few years. I think particularly with Microsoft's HoloLens project, that's one of the more advanced ones that we're looking at at the moment. But I think in a situation like this, when you really are looking at a stable image, you're not looking at something that is moving around. You know, it's just something that's there as a reference, mm. as opposed to anything that's animated. You get rid of a lot of those you know, issues that you might encounter. I think one of the problems and you know, one of the roadblocks that we are going to have here is cost. And I think being able to implement this software and hardware in surgeries everywhere is just not going to happen yeah. anytime soon. It's still going to be in that experimental space for quite a while, I think. Yeah. And it'll be in specialist wards kind of first. You'll, you'll probably see it with spinal stuff, like we were saying, and probably with cancer as well, I think will be a big one. I think in addition to, to implementation, you've got the fact that in, in the medical world, my dad was a doctor and we saw it quite a lot. Like even trying to get doctors to stop writing stuff down and putting it into computers so they had files on their patients. Mostly like, just because they're handwriting. Yeah, horrendous. but like it was like, a, like for a lot of them, it was like a 10, 15 year process. Like, wow. And particularly when talking to surgeons, like surgeons are specialists who are at the top of their field. They have a very particular way about doing things and their success rate is like a life or death thing, right? Mm. If they get it wrong, like you can have massive ramifications. So to like basically put Pokemon Go over, <laughs> over oh, there, wow. uh, which is not what you mean. But it's a nice... Uh, it's a nice allegory. I'll say it. It's terrible. No, but you are. You're essentially giving them like, and they they are they're very resistant Embolism to com- here. Oh, it's a it's a Pikachu. Oh, it's a Charizard. Um, do but not it is, catch it's, Pokemon during surgery. Don't do it. There will be warning signs up in the. <laughs> but in as much as it will be helpful, the reason I bring it up, in as much as it would be helpful, like to be at the level that you have to be at to be a surgeon of that quality, you are probably quite a bit older, mm. right? And so you're you're putting all this new stuff into the operating theater. You're putting like headsets and like oh, you, it's it's a lot. And I think that that onboarding phase, you're going to have to get junior surgeons who probably aren't at the level, maybe they're assisting, but they're probably not doing the surgery. You know, you've got that sweet spot where you've got somebody who's in their 40s or 50s who's been doing it for 20 years and gets it, but is still open to using that technology. Anyone younger, they're not doing the operations that you need it to be doing it on. And anyone older or more inexperienced with technology is just going to say no, or they're going to be really resistant to it. Right. So for all of those reasons, this is a good 10 years away. I, mm, yeah, at, at, as in terms of like, wide-scale adoption, I think so. Right. Are there limitations that are, I mean, obviously this is very, very, very new, but are there are there limitations that do technically need to be overcome? Like there's obviously, there's, there's, there's cultural and there's demographic issues, but are there technical limitations that also need to be overcome in the next couple of years that are sort of already apparent from this, this first uh, execution? I actually think this is a pretty reasonable application of augmented reality, to be honest. We're not talking about anything overly complicated here. Mm. It's essentially an overlay of a scan or an x-ray. It's what they'd be looking at on the wall and referencing, but it's right there in front of them. I, I don't think that this is something that can't be solved by technology. I think that this is a people getting used to the technology situation. All right. I look forward to finding a Charizard in my spine at some point in the next 10 years. (laughs) That is all we've got time for. Uh, Ray Johnson, always a pleasure to have you back on the show. 
Thank you for having me. Uh, if you enjoyed listening to Ray Johnson, you should definitely check out her podcast, Queens of the Drone Age. It is available at all of the places where podcasts are found. And John O'Sidler, creative lead with Unyoke, thanks for coming back on the show. Thank you. I went to get some Charizards while we were having that little intro, but I'm back. Did and you I'm... at least share them? No, I burnt my hand. <laughs> oh, they're the Bernie ones, aren't they? are the Bernie they? ones with the fire. Oh, How so... do you not know which one Charizard is? That's very uncool. <laughs> yeah, very That's why very you should uncool. know. That's why you should know. Mark, you're a nerd. Admit it. Turns out there's gaps in my notebook. <laughs> massive, <laughs> massive gaps. Uh, thank you both for coming back on the show. If you enjoyed this program, uh, head along to whichever podcasting app. I mean, you, you've already got a podcasting app open unless you're listening to this on the radio. Leave us a review. It's just one of those things that helps other people find the show. And I say thank you and give you socially distanced hugs in return. And with that, I shall leave you. My name is Mark Fennell. And thanks for listening to another deeply weird episode of Download This Show. <laughs>